Well, we are in our sermon series, A Fruit of the Spirit, with Advent. And so we have the rest of the fruit coming in the upcoming weeks. I'm not going to make the assumption that that list is necessarily exclusive to just those things, but I'm also not going to add and say that hope is one of the fruit of the Spirit today. Uh, But we're going to talk about hope. We're going to talk about the implications that the fruit of the Spirit have on our hope. Isn't that cool? Who's excited? I'm excited. So the way I want to start this off is is a little different than how I normally talk about things, where I'm going to present you with a bunch of secular material about what hope is. Then I'm going to present you with the reason why Christianity and Jesus offers a hope that we so need. Okay, you excited to go on this little adventure with me? Let's go. All right. So, people, all of us, all of all of all of us are hope-based creatures. People are hope-based creatures. What do I mean by that? Well, I uh, as I was studying this week, I came upon this author Andrew uh, DeBlanco, he was a professor at Columbia University. Uh, Time Magazine has called him America's best social critic. And he wrote a book, I think in 1999, called The Real American Dream. And in this book, he wrote the lurking suspicion that all are getting and spending amounts to fidgeting while we wait for death. We must imagine some end of life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours so we, uh, if we are to keep at bay the dim back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world. Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable statement. He's not a Christian, but he understands that culture is based in hope, and people are hope-based. So what is hope? Well, first, we all have desires, right? Yeah, we all have desires. Okay? If you have desires then you have expectations of something that will fulfill those desires, okay? Whatever you expect is going to fulfill your desires is your hope. Are you with me? Whatever you expect will fulfill your desires is your hope. This week, I was uh, interacting with a customer at uh, Gamer Craze, uh, and he was not, he, he came to me, he says, Aaron, I'm not doing well. I'm in a really, really hard time, feeling very down, and I'm struggling. And then he looked at me and he says, I think I need a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I think I need a girlfriend. And I looked at him and I said, buddy. You chose the wrong week to talk to me about this. 
And I told him that putting our hopes in fragile things leads to fragile results. Right? We place our hope in fragile things, we get fragile results. Right now, we live in a culture, uh, and uh, this author, uh, Andrew, says that he believes we're in a cultural crisis. And he believes that because he believes that as he's looked at the centuries, we're in a place where our hope has become incredibly fragile. Okay, so anything outside of Christ, we'll get there, I would say is fragile. But this author, as a secular author, is saying, in the past, there might be hope for the nation. There might be hope for uh, God. He said, I think he said in the 18th century, hope was in God. In the 19th century, hope was in nation. Those things go beyond the limited time that you have right? So that would be a less fragile hope. He says, the reason we're in a crisis today is because our hope is in ourselves. When your hope is in yourself, your desires become insatiable. Why is that? It's because he lets you down. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity put it like this. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things, that car, the girlfriend, the house, the job, in this world that offer to give it to you but they never quite keep their promise. He flushes that out and finishes it like this. If I, find my, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Without spelling it out directly, Lewis uh, and in our Advent reflection have pointed out to us the hope that we have as believers. But the way we see hope has become a bit um, distorted or muddied over time. The word in our language doesn't mean what it meant, okay? Uh, let me give you an example. Um, if you've ever received an email from me, okay? So that's a fair number of you. Uh, if you haven't received an email from me, email me. I'll email you back. And it's likely you'll hear something like this. I hope... You have had a wonderful week so far. Or I hope you had a delightful Thanksgiving. Or I hope something, right? But that word hope that I'm using has a degree of uncertainty. It's not certain. 
No, I'm using it exactly how we use it in our culture. But that isn't what the hope we're talking about today really means. If we look at elpis, this is the Greek word that's translated to hope. It means strong expectation. Okay? If we look at tikva, which is a Hebrew word that is translated to hope, most commonly translated to hope, it comes from the word meaning strong rope. Uh, it would be used to express a firm or solid expectation. Um, former uh, theologian and teacher Tim Keller put it like this. Traditionally, your hope is that which you expect and you are sure will satisfy your deepest desires. Okay? Traditionally, your hope is that which you expect and you are sure will satisfy your deepest desires. All right, so we've established what implications of hope. I think of, uh, as I was studying, I heard some examples given this week, and this one I liked particularly well. If you had uh, two uh, people, and they received the same exact job, okay? Same job. Two, they're going to do the exact same task. Let's put them in a blank white room table, put cog A onto platform B, do it again, do it again, do it again. You're going to do this eight to ten hours a day with a half an hour lunch break, and all the conditions are the same. We're talking air quality, the works, Okay? The only difference between here, I'm going to give you $10 million. So they're working along COG A, platform B, COG A, platform B. One day they're sitting in the lunchroom. And the guy that's been promised $10,000 is like, man, this job is a drag. They are abusing us. Can you believe it? And the other guy goes, I actually kind of like it. You know, I think about other things while I work, and sometimes I sing to myself, hum a little, whistle while I work. The difference between these two guys is that the hope of what's coming is drastically different. And it radically changes how they experience living. See where I'm going? We are hope-based creatures. So now that we're given this secular backdrop, let's talk about Christian hope. What is the nature of the hope that we have? As Christian followers, we have a life-changing certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but we know will. Okay? We have a life-changing certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but we know will. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that God, the Father, sent his only Son to die so that those who believe in him 
would not perish, but have eternal life. You believe that? The Bible says it. So if you believe the Bible, you believe that. If you believe that, then you understand that you who believe in him are assured an eternal existence. Right? So if you believe that, then you believe that you who believe in him are assured an eternal existence. What's the implication for us who are assured this incredible hope of eternal existence? Well, last week when I was talking about patience, I talked about suffering. And I said, we heard it repeated again and again and again in the Advent reflection. Psalm uh, 135, it says, I wait for the Lord, patience. My whole being waits, patience. And in his word, I put my hope. Hope. Patience and hope. We see it spelled out clearly in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And this is powerful. Ephesians 1, 17 through 20. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In incomparable great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. This word inheritance in 18, as I was looking at this text, is remarkable because oftentimes as you breathe, breathe through these, Paul, Paul is, a, is a pretty complicated writer and he likes to write really long sentences. Like incredibly long sentences with more grammar than I ever use. If you've ever received an email from me, you know. Word one, and then 25 words later, there's a dot. And it's like, yeah, figure it out. Uh, Paul, the grammar in Scripture has been perfected, thank the Lord. But, but this is incredibly complicated. And I think as you read through it, when you think about this word inheritance, it's easy to think about heaven, new earth, right? My inheritance, this is not what it says, though. We'll get there. It's not what it says. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Scott, as he was sharing earlier, talked about the precious nature of our relationship with God and how he sees us. What this prayer that Paul is praying, he can say, he's saying that he wants them to see the hope that they're called to in the fact that they are God's treasure. An almighty God, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and yet his glorious inheritance is you. It's you. I don't think it could be more endearing than that. 
You aren't a consolation prize. Heaven isn't your consolation prize. It's not like, good job, you accepted Jesus, high fives, you're in. It's not. You mean so much more than that. You're his treasure. That's a transforming reality of the hope that we have, to be his treasure. And we are promised an inheritance. We're promised an inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In our Advent reflection, we were encouraged to be a light as believers, be a light, to be a candle in the darkness. We have his identity. We are his sons and daughters, his precious treasure. My question for those of us who believe this morning is, understanding the nature of the hope we have, are you living in it? Are you living in it? We talked about being a light. We talked about being a candle in the darkness. And unlike the culture of our country, we need to have a hope-driven culture in our family, the family of Christ. Family of Christ has a hope worth celebrating. We have a hope worth celebrating. Is that Engaging with you as you engage with the certain suffering of living. Are you engaging with the hope that you have in the certain suffering of living? I want to invite up the musicians, John Alt, for communion. I'm going to read through Revelation 21. We, we, we got a snapshot 21, 1 through 6, we got a snapshot of this in the reflection. Uh, but this is, 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 is just a beautiful picture of the hope that we have in eternity. Then I saw, is a bride, beautiful, dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God dwell, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he himself will be their God and live with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. State of sin in the light of his glory and grace. <laughs>